Welcome, friends. You are listening to the podcast for First Christian Church in Fort Myers, Florida. To learn more, join us online at fccfm.org. It is a blessing to be able to share God's Word with you today. Thanks for joining us. He was a shepherd. He was a harp player, songwriter, warrior, general, king. We've been looking at the life of David for the last six weeks, and we called this series Invincible, something that can't be defeated. And there were times in David's life where he was invincible, and then there were some times not so much. And we're learning how do we live that invincible life walking with God, and what are the things that we drift from that suddenly make us not so invincible. We've learned a lot about David. We've learned that his name's mentioned almost a thousand times in the Bible, second only to Jesus. He was the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. He was uh, the youngest of eight boys. He had some older sisters, youngest of eight boys of Jesse. Uh, Was anointed the king, the next king of Israel at the age of 15. Probably at the age of 18 or 19, he had killed Goliath, cut his head off, and that put him on the national scene. Everybody knew who he was. Then he became a part of, of the military and leadership. He would go and play his harp for Saul when he was troubled and bring him calm. But then as his fame grew, people began to say how great David was and that he was actually better than Saul. And Saul, in his jealousy, tried to kill David multiple occasions. And he spent the last six or seven years of, before he became king running, hiding in caves. At the age of 30, Saul is in battle. Saul is killed, and Ishbosheth, Saul's son, becomes king of Israel. David becomes king of Judah, which were the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Ishbosheth wasn't much of a king, and after seven and a half years, his own people killed him. And then the kingdom is merged, and David becomes king of, of both, and they become the kingdom of Israel. He's the king until he's. 70 years old. So for 40 years, he's the king. And we've been looking at his life and learning from him. And I want to kind of follow up on something Jimmy said last week. Pastor Jimmy said, it's a reality. Good people mess up. People can have good hearts and still mess up. Look at the person next to you and say, I have a good heart and I still mess up. Some of you didn't say that like you meant it. Yeah. And some of you said, you have a good heart, but you mess up. No, you're supposed to say, I have a good heart, and I mess up. <laughs> and you wonder, why do we study mistakes that people made in the Bible? I mean, isn't it great to know that David was after a man, uh, man after God's own heart, and he killed Goliath, and he was a great, he conquered the Philistines, and we love all that good stuff. Why do we study the other stuff? Oliver Wendell Holmes said, we learn from our mistakes, but we don't live enough, live long enough to learn enough. Warren Buffett said, it's good to learn from your mistakes. It's better to learn from other people's mistakes. And that's why we study some of these things. We want to learn, and that's why God put them in here, so we can see these are mistakes people made that we can drift into if we're not careful. I like the analogy we use that the hospital is, or the church is like a hospital at the bottom of a cliff. And all of us at some point in our life go off the cliff. You know, everybody in the room's a sinner. We can all admit that, and we all need a savior. And the, hot, the church is there to redeem and restore and, and to heal, and that's what it's there for. But there's also some good, 
good ideas and putting guardrails at the top of the cliff so we don't just keep going over it. And so that's why we study some of these things about some of these great men of God, some of their shortcomings. So last week we looked at Bathsheba, and today we want to look at another time in David's life. This is toward the end of his life. And as he is approaching the end of being king, uh, the transition that he's going to make so Solomon can come in and be king, uh, 2 Samuel 22 tells us of a song that he wrote. And he wrote this. It's also recorded as Psalm 18. It's one of his songs. I just want to read a few verses from it. These are the kind of things David thought of as he looked back over his life. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. He's reached down. He's took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me. He comforted me. He brought me. He goes on and on and on. Kind of like the song we just sung, all my life you've been faithful. That's what David was saying. He gets to verse 28. And he says, you save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Which is our big idea for today. We want to look at the lesson that we need to learn from David. Invincibility is impossible without humility. To live the invincible life that God wants to provide for us, it's impossible to live that life without humility. And David had to learn that lesson. And that's what we want to look at. Just a few chapters later in chapter 24, there's an event that happens in David's life. And I'm going to read verses 2 through 10, and uh, it'll be on the screen. And then we're going to learn some things from this event, okay? So the king said to Joab and the army commanders, the king was David, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Next couple verses tell where they went, across the Jordan, camp near Era, south of town of Gorge, then they went to Gad, then Jazar, Gilead, uh, Taman Hadshi, went to Danyan, went to Sidon, and they went to Otire, uh, the hill, towns of the Hivites, Canaanites. Finally, they went to Beersheba. They go through the whole kingdom of Israel. They get back, verse eight. After they'd gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. 1.3 million guys, warrior age. They had to be at least 20, and they had to still be young enough to handle a sword and go to battle. Experts say that probably the population of Israel at that time was a little over 6 million people. We need to understand in the time of David, Israel was a world power. All the other nations looked at Israel and saw that they were the world power. 1.3 million people ready to go to military service if he needed them. Verse 10. David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men and he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. I read that and I was like, what foolish thing? I mean, to me, this makes perfect sense. If you're the guy in charge, if you're the king, you kind of want to know how many people you got to go to war. 
you'd want to know your military strength. Uh, first service, Brigadier General was sitting over here, and I looked at him, and he just was like, yeah, that's right. You want to know that? You know, and, and it's like, I'm, I'm, I don't get it. So I had to go back and do some study. Why is this such a big deal that David felt like he needed to repent of? Well, there are a few things we need to know. Back in Exodus, when God gave them instructions to take a census of the people, he also instructed them never take a census unless I tell you to. The second thing, it culturally, you didn't count something that wasn't yours. When you started counting something, you immediately laid claim to it, that it was yours. These are my sheep, this is my land, this is how many acres, this is how. And so David, for whatever reason, he wasn't about to be assaulted by another nation. He didn't know this. And anyway, anytime he went to war, God told him, go, I'll take care and make sure you win. It didn't matter how many people he had. So there was this pride and arrogant thing in David that somehow prompted him and he realizes that after it happens. So he says, God, I've done a very foolish thing. I beg you, take your guilt of your servant. And we think, okay, that'd be a pretty easy thing. God sends a prophet to David. And this prophet comes to him and says, David, there's consequences to sin and you sinned. And David should know that. This is, this is about 20 years after the Bathsheba thing, but he knows consequences of sin. And the prophet says, okay, here, here's, you know, we're gonna give you three choices. I don't know if any other time God does this. He says, David, I'm gonna give you three choices, the consequence of your sin. Behind door number one, we can have three years of famine for the entire nation of Israel. Behind door number two, you can flee for three months while your enemies pursue you. And behind door number three, we can send a plague on Israel for three days. David thinks through that and he's like, man, a famine for three years, that would destroy us and all of our enemies could come in and conquer us. Door number two, he goes, the last time I was running from my enemies, I was in my 20s. Now I'm 68, I'm 66, I know what he's thinking. I'm like, yeah, sleeping on the ground in a cave with people chasing me is not gonna be a good idea. And then so in verse 14, he kind of gives a non-answer, but he gives an answer. He says this to God. He says, man, I am in deep distress. The message says doo-doo. Uh, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. So he says, I can't fall into hands. If there's a famine, we're gonna fall into other people's hands. If, if I have to flee, I'm gonna fall into other people's hands. Let's have a plague. God sends a plague and 70,000 people die for David's sin. The prophet goes on to tell David to build an altar. He does, he offers a sacrifice. The last verse of the chapter says, the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Now I get the consequences from Bathsheba I mean, we would all agree, man, that was a pretty terrible sin. You send Uriah to die, you steal his wife, you commit adultery, you lie, you don't admit it for a couple years. I, I get why now you've got the baby died, your family's disrupted, and, and you've got this story people are gonna tell until Jesus comes back about you. But this, 70,000 people died because David took a census. Nobody got hurt in the census. Nobody died in the census. Nobody lost anything in a census. So I was trying to figure out why did 70,000 people die because David took a census. And I realized 
something that we don't grasp very often, how much God hates pride and arrogance. That he would send a plague that 70,000 people would die because of David's pride. And then I got to thinking, I remember now why this guy named Lucifer got cast out of heaven. What was it for? Pride. Thought he could do a better job. Thought he had a better plan. Remember how many times God talks about hating pride. And I don't know about you. Actually, I know none of you probably struggle with pride. They all came to first service. But I know at times I do. And so let me just share four lessons this morning, okay? Four things that maybe can help us at least walk with a little more awareness of this. Lesson number one, subtle sin of pride will destroy more than we're aware. It will destroy. God hates it, he says, and we ignore it. I was with a good friend. He's a much wiser man than me and we were together one time and, and I forget how it came up but Gary, do you think you're arrogant? I was like, no. I didn't say it like that but I was like, well, no, I don't. And he said, define arrogance for me. And I said, man, I'm proud, bragging, swagging. I mean, I, I can point to you some preachers that are arrogant. It ain't me. You know, that's what I did, what I've done, all of that. I said, why do you think you're arrogant? He goes, oh yeah. I'm like, well, how do you define it? He said, self-sufficiency. And I'm like, well, isn't that what we're supposed to be shooting for? In our, and that how kind of we're raised in our country, you know, to be self-sufficient, to not to need anybody, not to need anything, just to count on me. And then I begin to realize how arrogant that is for people who are supposed to be depending on God. And then we say things like, again, none of you, but we say things like when something's going on and say, well, let's pray about it. Oh, I don't want to bother God. He's got bigger things to take care of. You realize how demeaning to God that is to say that? Oh, he's not big enough to take care of my stuff. And then how arrogant it is to say, I can handle it. I don't need him. And how this subtle pride and arrogance creeps into our life to where we end up living our life apart from God. And what he would want for us. And if we ask any one of us this morning, do you need God? We go, yeah, I need God. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. When I die, I want to go to heaven. Do I need him to mow my grass this week? No. Do I need him to fix the brakes on the car? No. Do I need him to go to work? No. And we start listing and most of us live 90% of our lives or more without God. One of my favorite country singers is Jelly Roll. Um, if you don't know who that is, you just gotta love him for the name alone. He's got a song now that's top 10 and it's crossing over. It ought to be on Christian radio. It's called Need a Favor. He says, I only talk to God when I need a favor. I only pray when I ain't got a prayer. I'm like, man, that's 95% of the people who say they're Christians in the world. We only talk to God when we need a favor. We only pray when we ain't got a prayer. And the reason we don't is this subtle nature of pride. I got this. I, I can handle this. It creeps in and it's destructive. It'll destroy. Number two, arrogance brings pain and suffering. We saw that last week as Pastor Jimmy shared about Bathsheba, the pain and suffering. 70,000 people die 
Proverbs 6 says God hates haughty eyes. Or he says he hates a lot of things, but the number one thing is pride. Haughty eyes. And David, I think, realized. I think that's why in verse 10 he said, man, I've messed up. I messed up. Everything that had been good in his life had been because of God. And he went out and did something to make a point that it was something he did. And we start saying dangerous things like, well, I built this, I worked on this, I made this happen, I deserve this, this is mine, this is the fruit of my labor, this is this and this. The arrogance creeps in and will bring pain and suffering. I think, I think David, I think there's a syndrome out there. Uh, it's called FDH syndrome. I think David had it. I think if we're not careful, those of us who get in the same period of our life can, can get it but also people anytime. It's the fat, dumb, and happy syndrome. And it's, it's when, you know, when things are rough, man, we're on our knees. We're, we need God. We're praying. We're telling people, pray for us. We're going through. The, when things are t- hard, we, want, we need God. But then things are good. And when they're good for a while, when's the last time we needed God? And we got, man, things are good. I got this. And we get fat, dumb, and happy. And I think that's what happened with David. Nobody's at war. He's a, he's a warrior, but he's not fighting anybody. He's already stockpiled everything for Solomon to build the temple when he comes behind him. He's pretty much done everything that he's got to do, and there was nothing going on. So he thought he'd just do something to maybe point out his legacy or show what he left behind for the next king. So he could say, well, here, I got 1.3 million soldiers for you, you know, whoever you are that takes over. If we're not careful, arrogance creeps in our life, brings pain and suffering. Number three, I think we need to learn to listen to good friends. And I probably should put, first, we need to have a good friend, a good friend. Joab actually was David's nephew. It was the son of David's older sister and had been with him through the entire time that David was king. Joab had done a few things to tick David off, but always to protect David. He'd killed some enemies that David had not asked him to and some things like that. Joab was the guy, when David sent the note with Uriah to put him at the front lines and then pull back, that was Joab that got the note. Joab knew David's skeletons in the closet. And he tries to tell David, this is not a good idea. He tries to say, you know, even, and a lesson there, when you're gonna critique somebody or warn them, give them some compliments first. Verse three, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over. May the eyes of my Lord the King live to see it. But, but why does my Lord the King wanna do such a thing? It's like, what are you thinking? David wasn't good at hearing from people once he set his mind on something. You remember last week, Pastor Jimmy was talking about the servant. When David saw Bathsheba, which by the way, if you go on one of the trips with Matt or I to the Holy Land, we stood in Jerusalem in David's palace on that balcony and looked down over the city. And you could see the rooftops and could very much understand what happened there. But you remember David asked the, the servant, who is that? That's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. <laughs> the servant was like, that's your, one of your best friends, one of your commanders, one of your military heroes, his wife. David didn't hear it. There's something that happens, happens to me. I don't know if it happens to you. I think there's something happens called the insanity of sin. That one thing that we would think is sin one day and then suddenly we're tempted with it and it makes perfect sense to us. 
Can you imagine if somebody had gone into David the day before he saw Bathsheba and said, hey, listen, what do you think if one of your guys, Uriah, you know him, why didn't you send him to get killed so you can steal his wife and rape her and get her pregnant? David would go, are you nuts? That's ridiculous. But the minute David was tempted, that made perfect sense to him. And all of us have been there that we look back and go, how stupid was I that I thought that was a good idea? And we need a friend sometimes to get in our face and say, that's really stupid. And we need to be humble enough at times when we're thinking of something that might be questionable to go to a friend that we trust and say, hey, this has been on my mind. Do you see any red flags? Is there anything here that maybe I need to be aware of? That takes some humility and it takes a really good friend, but we all need that. The fourth lesson I think is that a heart for God will not keep us sinless, but it will keep us sensitive to sin. David was a man after God's own heart. You know, with Bathsheba, it was a couple years before the prophet confronted him, Nathan, and he had to be confronted before he repented of that one. That was about 20 years before this. I think David's heart had been back tuned with God I don't know if he, if it hit him during the nine months the guys were gone doing this, something just didn't feel right, if God was working on his heart, or if, I thought, or if it was the moment that Joab got back and said, here's the count, idiot. If he just said, you know, hey, if David realized, oh man, this was a mistake. So having a heart tuned with God is not guaranteed that we won't sin, but it will make our heart more sensitive to sin. And we will catch it much more quickly. I wonder if David thought back to his song he wrote, verse 28, you save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Jesus, when he was doing his first teaching to his disciples, he said, guys, it's, there's two or three things you gotta live with every day. The first one is you gotta have the proper spirit. He said, you gotta, you gotta be poor in spirit. You gotta get up every day and realize I'm God and you're not. And that's the way it should be. And that's for your good. You gotta have that right spirit walking into every day and everything you do. And the second thing, if you'll have your heart right, you'll mourn your sin and your heart will become sensitive and you'll be able to have a pure heart, but you'll mourn your sin if you ask for that and want that. I think the best way to start our day would be get up every morning and just say, God, <laughs> I don't know what the day brings, but you're God and I'm not. And if the thought of sin crosses my mind, please catch me before I do it. Please stop me. Please break my heart at the thought of sin because I'd rather have my heart broken at the thought of sin than to sin and have the consequence and have my heart broken then. <clears throat> and Jesus said, that's how it happens. That's how we walk in the spirit. And that's how we walk in this invincibility is to know who God is and to have the proper heart. Proverbs 4.23 Above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. Invincibility happens when we have a heart for God, which is back to our big idea. Invincibility is impossible without humility. Until we say, God, you're God and I'm not. Everything is yours. We will never be able to walk in that invincibility. It, and notice it says it doesn't defeat us, not that we won't be crushed, destroyed, at times hurt, I think it was Apostle Paul said, man, that stuff happens on every side of us, but we are not defeated because of God. And that's what he invites us to, to live that invincible life. Jesus went on the third step of the three steps. He said, you have the proper spirit, you mourn your sin. 
but the meek are the ones that inherit the earth. In other words, if you can walk with meekness, you got everything. You don't have to defend anything. You don't have to fight for anything. You don't have to, to, to put up you know, uh, airs about anything. Walking in meekness means if somebody comes to me and says, Gary, man, you're an idiot. I'm like, you don't know the half of it. I'm dumber than you think. I got nothing to prove. There's peace in meekness. There's a peace that God wants to give us as we walk through life without anxiety about everything as we walk. There's an invincibility available if we walk and seek a heart after God's own heart. So what do we do? What's our takeaway? Here's what I wanna challenge you to for the week. And it's gonna feel weird. I want you to include God in everything you do. I mean everything that you do. If you're brushing your teeth, thank God you got them. If you can take them out and brush them in your hand, thank him it's easier. You know? I put brakes on my car yesterday and I was trying to practice this and I was like thanking God that one, that I know how to do it. Two, I get to save money. God, don't let the car fall on me. Please, please God, make them work when I'm done. Uh, thank God that we live where there's availability to go do that kind of stuff. And, it, and it's, it's I mean, you start including God in everything in your day and it's amazing the life change because suddenly the me disappears and you realize the song we just sang, God, all my life you've been so faithful, so good. I don't have anything because of me. Nothing's ever been accomplished because of me. It's all been because of you and God, thank you. Invincibility comes with humility. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. You're not afraid to show us the flaws and the scars. I pray we learn from them. Thank you for your patience. God, pride and arrogance slip in and it's so ugly and it's so devastating. And God, we, we would not want anything to get in the way of us accomplishing what you've sent us to do to be the light of the world. And when we shine our light instead of yours, people see the wrong things. So God, we pray humbly, you use us. Spirit, speak to our hearts, point out our desires for sin and the sin that we have not yet confessed or admitted. And God, may we be humble before you. Thank you for the joy and the peace that comes from that. In Jesus' name we pray. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If we can pray for you or encourage you in any capacity, please let us know at FCCFM.org.